I'm Alex and I'm Matt. Actually, that's not true. I'm still Alex and Matt is away. Um, but our guest this week is Aaron Zalin, a fellow at the Washington Institute, where his research focuses on how jihadist groups are adjusting to the new political environment in the era of Arab uprisings and Salafi politics in countries transitioning to democracy. He received his MA in Islamic and Middle Eastern Studies from Bandos University, and he has a BA from Indiana University. He is also um, the founder of Jihadology.net, an important resource for those trying to understand the world of militant Islam. Uh, and um, we had a really good conversation this week about um, both the work that he's doing in terms of how he does it, but also um, why he's doing it and the importance of dealing with primary source materials. So here's the interview. The point of entry for for um, looking at your work and stuff is is jihadology. Maybe this has changed now um, in terms of you know you're spending quite a bit of your your uh, time, or at least you're, you're publishing various things um, which are more about kind of analysing uh, the text that you collect on um, jihadology. Um, sure. But I guess to just just to start with that kind of. The idea of kind of clearing a house for texts, the idea of um, getting familiar with um, kind of primary source materials, um, which as um, uh, people who listen to this podcast know, we, we, we're very keen on. Um, uh, what, um, what, what, what got you interested and involved and, and how did you end up doing that? Yeah, so jihadology itself... Um sort of had its genesis in the spring of 2010 when I was um, finishing up my master's thesis on sort of the evolution of Islamist ideology that led to Al-Qaeda from the fall of the caliphate in 1924 until the end of the Afghan Jihad in 1989 um, when Al-Qaeda sort of, you know, became what it became over the years. Um, and while I was doing my master's thesis, um, you know, it was difficult to find primary sources. Um, and it's not as if, you know, teachers or professors really know these things as well either, since a lot of this is also new in some respects in terms of this content being on the Internet. Um, so I started to explore, you know, the jihadi forums, which at the time were the most relevant um, avenue for finding this content. Of course, things have changed since. Um, and now I'd argue Twitter is probably the most important headquarters in many ways for releases for most of the uh, Sunni jihadi organizations. Um, uh, and at first, I was just figuring it out myself. I really didn't know what I was doing. Um, but I thought after I completed the master's that I would set up uh, a website that hopefully would be beneficial then to other graduate students. And I created it in May 2010. So it's actually now around the five-year anniversary of the site being out, which is um, pretty crazy. Uh, that said, I never thought it would become as big or as popular as, as it has been. Um, of course, more than just graduate students are looking at the website now. Um, but that was the uh, initial uh, point of it. And then over time, as I began to understand the inner workings and the mechanics of of these groups and how they're releasing media, um, I was able to put more content on, but it was also more sophisticated in terms of um, the variety of it, as well as um, you know being more efficient in terms of putting it up at a certain time. Um, and and of course, this has evolved over time, um, just because of the changes in media online and also how jihadis have been approaching it. So as I alluded to now, um, whereas in the past I would uh, you know go 
on the forums in the morning and see what was going on and you know what had been released in the previous 24 hours or the last time I checked it. Um, and now it's more going on uh, Twitter feeds and following and seeing what's up with that and then just posting the content on my website. I'd also say that my own sort of uh, methodology in some respects for putting it on has changed too just as you know, my life has evolved and the time that I have to dedicate to things has multiplied um, in terms of just more and more projects over time. So sure. in 2010, when I first started the website, I literally just finished my master's um, and I was doing a research assistantship, so I didn't have a lot of um, work to do necessarily, so I had more time. So literally whenever a new thing came out, I would just post it right away, um, whereas now I primarily am just um, doing it right when I wake up in the morning um, and getting all of the releases and then just putting them all out at once in the morning and then doing it again, uh, you know, 24 hours later. Uh, so in some, that of respect, the, some of the stuff, I mean, it, it seems you treat it more as a kind of archive, suddenly the stuff from the Afghan Taliban or whatever, you know, that, that can maybe take take longer to go up, but it, it's it, it's less less timely, I guess, in any case. Yeah, well, that's the thing, too, is, is that uh, as you know, when I first started, it was kind of exciting in some ways, putting up a new release and then maybe somebody in the media checking out. Because cause the thing is, when when you think about it, I, I started the website and I was only, what, uh, 24, 25 back then? I don't even remember. I can't think of my age off the top of my head. But um, I was relatively young, so it was kind of exciting. Whereas now I've been doing it for a while. And it's, while it's still interesting and exciting talking to the media um, or when they catch a hold of it, um, it doesn't have that same, you know, flair in some respects, and and I'm also busy with other things too. So, you know, for me, if if a release comes out, you know, maybe 16 or 36 hours after it comes out, it's still going to be there if somebody wants to look at it in two weeks or a year or two years or whatever it is. So, um, it's it's less important, at least for me in my own perception and where I'm at in terms of my own research and what I'm doing. That it doesn't necessarily need to be out like you know two seconds after it comes out. I mean, maybe if it's a really really large release, I would do it right away. Say, for example, when the Islamic State announced its caliphate, or sure, sure. say if you know uh, Ayman al Zawahiri was killed in a drone strike or in some special operations, and Al Qaeda put out a statement saying who the next official leader was, I might put that out right away just because it's so uh, monumental and important and relevant. Um, but most of this stuff, you know, it's it's the typical day-to-day stuff, and it, it it's not necessarily newsworthy when you're just following it every day. And you're probably going to put that stuff out on Twitter first in any case, so and people will follow you there as well. Yeah, likely. exactly. I mean, uh, I simultaneously have the website hooked up to the Jihadology right. account on Twitter, um, and I also will tweet it out on my regular Azelin account as well. Um, yep. So there are multiple avenues for people to see it. Um, at, at the risk of um, uh, stating the obvious, um, you know, you're you're putting out a lot of these statements in the original languages, which is kind of um, actually interesting that your website is as popular as it is because you would think that the market for you know Arabic um, dense, sometimes kind of religious texts and stuff would be relatively small. Um, what what is the what is the use that these kinds of statements uh, bring to um, uh, the policy debate, uh, academia in general? Um? I mean, for me, I think it's just being able to better educate people in terms of seeing the full spectrum of what's going on, um, and I think it you know 
in some ways, the website came about at a really mon uh, monumental change in sort of the evolution and how these groups were acting and evolving, especially in 2011, 2012, and 2013, where they went from not just these pure terrorist or insurgent organizations, but you really started to see um, a, a multitude of groups using you know, social services and, you know, sort of low-level governance type of activities. Um, and when you usually hear about these groups, uh, you, you only, at least in the media and the news, and a lot of times many just people talking about in terms of a military sense, but at least for me as somebody that doesn't have a background in, like, military strategic studies but more as an area studies type of nerd, um, I'm more interested in, you know, the social political, uh, historical, religious, language, et cetera, type of issues. Um, so for me personally, I thought it was important to highlight this broader spectrum of activities that these types of organizations were doing because um, I think it can better help understand why there is the appeal for these groups um, in a way more so now than even in the past. Um, and, and that story wasn't necessarily being told, um, where I think more so people you know, realize it now, but there is still a deficit in some respects in terms of um, truly getting to all the different aspects of it. Um, but I do think that when you look at those who really are specialists in this topic, uh, there are more people focusing on other areas of these different types of organizations, depending on which parts of it, whether it's related to the actual social services and governance, but also more of these cultural issues. I mean, um, you know, Thomas Heghammer, as I'm sure we're, will be coming out um, with that edited volume about uh, jihadi culture soon. Um, and, and increasingly, you see more and more content with poems, with Anashid, um, also with uh, Quranic uh, recitations, uh, as well as other mundane activities that you wouldn't necessarily think much of, but is part of this broader aspect of this movement in general. Yeah, I mean, Thomas had that really interesting, I guess it was a speech um, last week or the week before, um, where he was talking about, um, uh, you know, this this kind of more more mundane aspects, and I guess um, you know, uh, and he he seemed to kind of admit as such in in his comments that there was this whole kind of aspect of uh, life, almost a kind of subculture that that hadn't really been studied, um, which I guess you know connects with a little bit with this idea of kind of studying groups from their statement and you know if you say you're coming at things from from an area studies perspective is it possible to understand uh i don't know syria without actually being there among these groups yeah i mean that's i mean that's always been one of the biggest issues though when you're studying these organizations that it's it's difficult to do field research just because of um you know the potential that something could happen to you because they are violent organizations and they don't necessarily like those who are studying them in general. <laughs> yeah. um, but because of it, uh, because of just the level amount of information that they're putting out now, I mean, uh, it's, it's overwhelming in some ways compared to when I first started collecting data. But because of it, you can really get a broader picture of what's going on. Of course, it doesn't mean you get every single aspect of it um, just because it's, it's impossible in some ways because these are clandestine organizations. Um, uh, but I do think that, you know, with a lot of these um, primary source materials, whether it's actual statements, audio, video messages, but also now they put out a lot of, you know, pictures of what they're doing. There's a lot of just text tweets of what they're doing. 
Um, so you really could get a pretty good picture. Of course, it's not going to be a perfect picture, um, but you also have to look at these sources and analyze them critically in some ways as well. You know, for example, there are some of these pictures that they'll put out, uh, say, for example, the Islamic State, where they're showing, you know, a, a supermarket in Iraq that's fully stocked with vegetables and fruits and everything you'd want to need. And then they pan over to another picture and it's like a furniture store and it looks like all these nice new furniture. But then you have to look back and be like, there's nobody actually in these stores. Is this really what's going on or are they just doing this for the camera? In the same way, for those who have seen the movie, the interview saw the supermarket scene in that uh, movie. Uh, uh, so, you know, you've you got to be just as critical. Um, uh, you know, if it was safer, uh, I think more people would be willing to, um, you know, uh, go to these areas, Syria or Iraq or Yemen, and actually talk to the individual. I think that, you know, researchers that are truly interested are willing to do that if they felt safe enough. Though there are newer avenues in some ways that, you know, you've sort of seen these sort of digital ethnography type of potential studies where some researchers have been talking to some of these individuals that are on the ground, though they're doing it online, not actually there, um, which, you know, isn't perfect either. Um, but compared to, say, where we were maybe five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago, because of the level of information, I, I do think that you can get a pretty good uh, prism into what's going on now. Well, and I mean, how, how do you go about triangulating and cross-referencing that information? Um, I mean, just because it's um, just because there are photos and so on doesn't mean that that, that there are you know that, that that tells the picture. And you know, and conversely, um, part of the problem with the lack of kind of individuals on the ground means that the people who do end up going to these places, their testimony can kind of sway perceptions uh, far larger than, than, than probably is, 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 uh, is useful. You know, this, this German journalist uh, a few months ago was um, uh, spent some time in Iraq, I think, and maybe Syria as well. And then, you know, his, his accounts and reports and so on uh, took on kind of a, a far larger degree of importance than if he was one among many researchers, uh, how, how how do you kind of uh, balance that out, and how do you, how do you kind of check check what you're what you're reading? Yeah, no, I agree that that's definitely an issue as well, and there are limitations there also. Um, one of the things I do, at least if you're looking at the case of Syria in particular, is that I think it's important that you're not just looking at the primary sources specifically from the Islamic State or Jabal Tanus or whatever group, I think it's important to look at um, what all the different factions are putting out and sort of figuring out where they all line up together. Um, and therefore, from there, you can sort of see which seems more credible and relevant. Um, and then it's not just necessarily um, comparing this to what's going on on a day-to-day -day basis, but then because you're looking at it over time, over months, over years, you could sort of see the track record of these different types of organizations, groups, activists, individuals that are talking about these issues and really have a good idea of what is deemed credible based off of your own experience. Um, so part of it is just, um, you know, doing this over time and being able to really uh, know these types of sources in a way that you might not, if you're only looking at it randomly 
or you're new to it. Um, so I, I do think it's important that uh, you re- people, individuals who are looking at this really need to um, be doing this over a longer period of time. Otherwise, you might get caught up in something and say something, and therefore people are making a larger deal of it than it necessarily might be. And, um, you know, you could see some of this with some individuals who just have recently got into this field or are excited about it because they can access it in an easier way now because it's on Twitter and not on a password-protected forum where, you know, they'll see something that somebody says um, and then they'll do a screenshot of it and tweet it and then and it, it somehow ends up, you know, uh, on a major news that. website yeah. and it's like, okay, you know. Uh, so there are issues with this as well um, uh, that I think uh, I'm unsure people necessarily think about just because they're excited about putting this information out there publicly um, because they think it's relevant and important. But there's also a way of making sure you're careful with this types of information too. Um, and, I'll, and I'll fully admit that, you know, I've, I've made that mistake in the past myself, especially um, when I first got on Twitter and it was a new and relatively exciting thing as well. Um, but, you know... As you do more of this, I, I think you, um, you know, become more mellow in some respects to it um, and just are more interested in getting to, the, to what's really going on here. Um, yeah, I mean, it's the, 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 that kind of whole interaction between um, kind of the information and the people who are consuming it. And I mean, obviously, uh, or at least on, on Twitter, there are various people who act as um, kind of information brokers in, in some ways, whereas in the past, yeah, you may have had kind of forums and so on. Now, the, the, the kind of the distribution network is, is, is slightly, um, uh, slightly wider. Um, and yeah, as you say, it's, it's useful to, uh, to be able to, um, to kind of know what you're, you're putting out there. Um, uh, you, you everything you're you're putting out on the site is um or a lot of what you're putting out on the site um is uh information that um um you know these are these are often kind of militant groups uh, attacking civilians and what what have you um how how do you deal with the whole um kind of your your enabling enabling these groups by by publishing the material kind of accusation yeah i think that it's uh, increasingly becoming more of an issue in some respects just because more individuals are aware of this in, in some ways than they were in the past and it seems more immediate um i think one of the you know when I originally started the website, I was obviously worried that it would enable people but I was, you know I, I said to myself and I asked some people about this um, and essentially my conclusion was is those who are interested in finding it are going to find it either way but right. I, I do think it's 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 become more of an issue now because it's easier to find this content um, even if you weren't looking for it necessarily and while it might not uh, you know do anything to most people, it might trigger one person out of I don't know, 100,000, right. and that right. person then could go down the path. Um, so I definitely do worry, but I, I try not to censor it just because I think it's important to for everybody to see what's going on. Though there are some cases where I won't post it, a uh, video in particular, when I know it's specifically something that the organization itself is trying to use to get more media attention, and I don't want to be a part of that. Um, so, for example, 
you know, the beheading videos of the journalists and humanitarian workers, yeah. um, or when they burned alive the Jordanian pilot. I, I, I posted on the website the date that it happened and the title of it and the graphic that they posted, um, but I didn't actually post the actual video just because I didn't want to be part of um, sort of, uh, you know, broadening this, this, these messages. Whereas, you know, I'm obviously also posting uh, videos where they are killing and executing people as well. Um, but because it, it's not necessarily something that's going to blow up the news, uh, I don't think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a hard line to, right. to deal with, to be honest. I mean, you know, I don't have a right answer, and it's more a gut feeling in some respects, too. Um, and some people might say that I'm a hypocrite then, but uh, I'm just trying to do it as best as I can. But I would say 99% of the stuff I do put on my website. Right. But, but I'd argue that it is becoming more difficult in some ways, especially as it seems that there's more of a movement to censor this type of content. Um, than we have seen in the past, at least in the U.S. context. I, you know, I can't speak necessarily to the European context just because they have some different laws related to speech. But I know it. It seems increasingly like the U.S. is, um, and Congress is more interested in censoring this type of content. Mm -hmm. um, what What do you make of? I mean, there there are a whole bunch of um, uh, groups, as I'm sure you're you're aware, groups who monitor. Um, uh, not just kind of uh, jihadi media, um, so to say, uh, but also kind of, um, you know, uh, let's say Arab, Arab language media, uh, Farsi media in general. Um, a lot of them kind of translate it. Um, uh, actually, a lot of them, well, some of them also kind of come with their own their own agendas. I guess that's, sure. a, that's a separate issue um yeah. but you know they're they're very much and you know i can think of one or two kind of big names which really seem to dominate the way that a lot of these messages are kind of covered and picked up because yeah. because these will be the only kind of contact that that journalists will be able to have because of the kind of the language issue i guess what's what's your take on that are they are they serving a, a useful purpose are they kind of prolonging things or perpetuating things yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I personally as somebody that, you you know, I think anybody can access this information, so why would you pay for it to get it? I understand you want to get it because it's then in English relatively easily, um, but, you know, from my experience, there's a difference between reading it in the actual Arabic it comes from originally and then reading it in English. There's just a different... Right. texture in some ways you can get when you're reading in the original language and it might be missed or some nuances missed in the english as well um so you know i, I don't think it's perfect uh it is good that more people are potentially able to access it um but it seems as if you'll get journalists who will just see something from one of these monitoring sites and then report on it within an hour without really looking deeply at the document potentially um, and what it might mean and, and how this fits into everything that else has been going on or what they might have been saying before. Um, but, but I do think it is important to report on it. So there is some utility, but it's, it's, it's obviously not perfect and there's, there are some issues on it, especially if the translations are imperfect or somebody is trying to push a particular agenda or narrative in what they're trying to do. And that's one of the reasons why I also 
just provide the documents so anybody could read them if they if they have the ability and um, I think it's been most beneficial probably to those that are usually researchers that can read it because then they can access it and try and do broader studies um, and really do some rigorous research on the content. Right. I mean, you know, the, the, the volume of information at the moment is is such and is such that you can almost kind of find whatever you want in it if you're looking for something. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, there's so much endless possibilities to do research on this topic in terms of a particular country or a particular group or a particular angle related to an organization. Um, and the thing, too, is, is that, you know, as somebody that's more of an academic style researcher or just researcher in general, I'm also going to be approaching the documents and my interests differently than, say, somebody that um, is more of a journalist um, or somebody that's just interested in casually following because they're interested because they want to see what's going on, um, or people who are probably in government checking it out and they're you know using it because they deem themselves at war. Um, Whereas, uh, you know, obviously I disagree with what these organizations are doing. I'm personally just using because I'm trying to understand and analyze what's going on here. Right. Um, just to switch kind of uh, tax slightly, you're, um, uh, as far as I read, you're doing a PhD at King's? Sorry. Yeah, I am doing a PhD at King's College. Um, and uh, hopefully I'll be done in the next 12 to 15 months at, at the latest. Inshallah. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> Um, uh, where, I guess I want to ask kind of why, why are you doing it? What's, what's the, the kind of eternal question? What's, what's the value in, in, in a PhD, uh, these days? Is it a question of ticking a box for you or, um, because you want to teach or go into academia? I mean, you seem to, 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 um, uh, yeah, you know, you found a, a kind of, uh, a niche for yourself, um, uh, even, even, even without a PhD. Yeah. I mean, part of it is I, I've always just wanted to do a PhD. Uh, my, my dad has a PhD, so I always thought it'd be really cool to do. I know that that's not necessarily the best reason to do a PhD, <laughs> but that's, that's one of the original reasons that made me start looking into that potential idea when I was, uh, you know, younger, maybe in undergraduate school. Um, but I've, I also want to do it because I think it provides me the opportunity to really look at a subject in a, in a, in a deeper manner than I would necessarily in my day-to-day -day job at the Washington Institute in um, D.C., where it's more, uh, you know, smaller pieces um, and more of a focus on policy per se, whereas, you know, with a PhD, I could really rigorously look at um, some particular research idea and investigate it in a way that I wouldn't be able to otherwise, especially since the area that uh, my dissertation is on, which is on um, Tunisia, and I'm trying to sort of answer why Ansar al-Shariya, after the revolution, was able to um, become such a force um, in the country. Right. Uh, is that, you know, Tunisia is not necessarily the most policy-relevant issue either, um, at least in the context of the U.S. Maybe if you're living in France, it is. But in the U.S., you know, historically, it's more Egypt, the Gulf states, and uh, things going on in the Levant, uh, and less North Africa. Um, so it also provided me an avenue to do something that I really, you know, was intellectually curious about, um, and being able to investigate it, and, and it, it has been exciting because I've been able to 
um, look at a lot of information that really hasn't been explored previously since um, uh, you know nobody's really looked at Tunisian involvement in the jihadi movement in a holistic manner right. previously. Um, you know, I'd say before 2011, most people wouldn't even really think about Tunisians involved in it that much, yeah, yeah. Uh, unless you're really, really, you know, close into that, and that you know that Tunisians were actually involved in the assassination of Ahmed Shamassoud two days before right. 9/11. But beyond that, you really wouldn't have thought of Tunisians in that way. Um, and it also just intrigued me because you know, when you hear about Tunisia, you always have been like, oh, this is a really, you know, secular, cosmopolitan country, and even. The mainstream Islamist movement there, Nahta, you know, they're also probably the most um, moderate group in terms of pragmatism on issues than, say, other Ikhwani style Islamist movements, too. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when I, when I first started seeing activism in Tunisia overtly um, after the revolution in, um, in this mid to late spring 2011, it really piqued my interest and I really wanted to explore it more. And I thought, um, you know, one of the avenues that I'd really have the opportunity to do it was through this PhD and that I would then be able to really get at this answer that, um, you know, made me want to do it. It's like, there's this weird contradiction compared to sort of this public perception um, and what the reality was starting to be on the ground. Of course, now when you hear about Tunisians and jihadists, in 2015, it's it doesn't sound necessarily weird because you've heard a million news stories about all these Tunisian foreign fighters right. um, and the like. <laughs> but when you but when I first started seeing this in spring 2011, you know, it was I wouldn't say I was shocked, but it was it was very interesting to me, and I wanted to understand it more. So it seems you're kind of indulging your curiosity in a way um, that you you're unable to do in the kind of the day to day monitoring of things and kind of policy-related stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that's the case. Um, that's not to say that I'm not interested in what I, I'm doing on a daily basis. You know, I, I do find interest in in uh, doing research and what's going on in, uh, you know, Syria or Libya or Yemen or whatever sure. particular angle of a topic I'm, I'm looking at for the jihadi movement. Um, but for whatever reason, the, the topic in Tunisia really grabbed me and I really wanted to be able to look at it in a serious manner so it's something i mean there's this kind of endless um uh debate on um well uh, uh about the kind of value of the phd these days um, particularly in you know in kind of uh, washington dc circles and um uh every every other week there's a kind of article you should do a phd you shouldn't do a phd <laughs> um which which camp are, are you in aside from the fact that you're doing one yeah sure um i mean i think it it honestly depends on the person's context so i was extremely lucky and i'll admit it fully and um that i was able to get a fellowship in dc when i was only 25 i mean that's usually unheard of in many respects so I'm, I'm very lucky that i got the opportunity and I've, I've taken it and you know hopefully been able to prove that um it was it was worth the hire um with that said i'm unsure that because i was in that situation i necessarily needed to do a phd because i was already um there. you know in there in some respects uh but it was it was more because i wanted to do the phd for my own personal fulfillment um, and my own intellectual reasons. Uh, but, you know, if it's somebody else and, and they're still trying to break in um, and it's harder, uh, it, it might potentially help. 
them in some ways. But you know, I, I think that's I think one of the issues is that once somebody gets in the position they're in, um, you know, they always use their own experiences as the one that explains why they're able to get there. Even though I think everybody gets to the ultimate position they hope to be in through different avenues. Um, you know, when I've talked to different people um, in my own office or people in other offices in D.C. or individuals working in, you know, other parts of the world but on similar topics, there's, there isn't one specific path that people go down to get there. I think there's a lot of unique paths. So I honestly think it's very difficult to say um, in some respects. But, but I do think that because of the hyper-competitiveness within D.C., the fact that you would have, you know, a, a PhD would probably help if you don't ha- if you don't get some type of break or lucky opportunity, um, like I fortunately was able to get. So it's sort of like PhD is kind of the new masters. You know, everyone has a master's degree, so the way you can distinguish yourself is by going kind of one step higher on the ladder. Yeah, I, I definitely do think that's the case, though. Uh, just because that might be what it is now that doesn't necessarily mean everybody has the capabilities to get a phd i mean i'll fully admit that um you know uh, it's it's been a lot more difficult than i thought it was going to be um but i i've always wanted to do it so it hasn't necessarily been an issue in that regard but for somebody who's just doing it to go through the motions so that they can get that particular degree it might be more difficult and as i'm sure you've read all of the many uh, blog posts that Dan Dresner's uh, sure, yeah. written over the years, he's like, you can't just uh, uh, slug your way through a PhD. It's just not possible. Yeah. Um, uh, so so I, I do think there is truth to that as well. I, I do think that you have to truly know what you're doing and truly be passionate about it and truly interested in it. Um, but, you know, we will see where things go because you increasingly see it, you know, individuals that are having master's degrees that are having research assistantships, and therefore those that have bachelor's degrees can't even get those types of positions. So it's it's a perverse incentive system. And one of the issues too is is that it's essentially you're either an intern, a research assistant, or a senior fellow. There's really not that many spaces for anything in between. And I personally think that there should be space for it because there are many talented young individuals um that i do think that they that can do their own research um but might not necessarily have that phd yet um and i do think it's sort of uh, a gap in in potential opportunities there especially somebody who was able you know to start the fellowship at a young age and somebody that had hadn't had their phd yet i, I do think people that are younger are capable of doing it um and i, I see so many smart people um, you know, that are in my office or in or around town that are younger that have the capabilities to do these things. Um, but unfortunately, for whatever reason, there aren't sort of these many opportunities for junior fellowships or something in between a research assistantship or being, you know, a top-level fellow. Uh, yeah, I mean, just just moving on to kind of the, your your work and, you know, you've... you've um, uh you have now kind of a, a position or a place uh within a think tank um what kind of just to kind of look at the the, the kind of value that think tanks um contribute um do, do you feel there's kind of um a, a limit in some ways to to the knowledge i mean you were talking about phds just now and you know it's it's really great to kind of 
dive deep into a particular issue um uh, sometimes i wonder you know if the just just the kind of the the day-to-day um expectations of you know what people working for think tanks do um you know how you know things always get boiled down to you know the one page executive summary um and um complex issues you know everyone just wants you know the three bullet points to explain libya or you know whatever it is um what what kind of value can um uh can the work of 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 think tanks contribute to policy and um is it is it is 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 the nature of kind of policy relevant research always bound to kind of decomplexify things or or simplify things i don't necessarily think it needs to be that way because in my own particular case i don't think the way i write necessarily is black and white um i think i try and you know explain things as best i can and try and bring in all the nuance i can and uh, I'm sure I haven't been perfect, though. Um, uh, but I think it also depends on a particular organization. So one of the issues, I think, is that many organizations have become increasingly partisan, so they're really only you know, coming up with ideas um, to push with a particular political party. At least this is in the context of the United States, um, where there really is a cottage industry with think tanks in the last 10 to 15 years, I, I think. Um, Whereas I think there's more value now in, in the think tanks that allow truly original research. And I've been lucky that my office has been has given me a lot of independence in allowing me to do this. Um, uh, so I do think that there is a possibility for it. I just think that, um, you know, there's a lot of other things going on, say, in D.C. with larger think tanks or more boutique think tanks that are for a particular cause um, that might drown out some of the work that other people are doing that are trying to attempt to have a serious research and conversation on it, even if it's not in an academic context. Um, um, but it's, it is difficult, though, especially since increasingly uh, think tanks are getting money from you know, foreign governments or corporations or only a small cadre of individuals. Luckily, in my office, we only get it from uh, private American citizens and it's spread amongst a bunch of different people. So there's not like some clique or anything controlling everything. Um, right. So I, I am very lucky in that, in that I do have that independence. I'm unsure that I'd be happy being in an, another situation where somebody was telling me to focus on a certain thing. Whereas on a daily basis, at least, uh, at least I can speak for myself is that, you know, I sort of just see what's going on online, see what these groups are up to and what I find interesting or unique and relevant. And then from there, try and, you know, understand it better. And once I have enough information that I find is, uh, you know, good to come up with an article, whether it's something that's 1500 words or something all the way up to, you know, like four or 5,000 words, then I'll, then I'll really, uh, dig deep and, and then put it out online. But, uh, but um, but I think part of it is also my own personal choice in some respects in that, um, you know, at heart I'm probably more of an academic um, right. than a policy person in some ways. So, uh, so I, you know, I think that that's part of it as well. I, I can't speak for other people, though. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not as if you're, you know, writing the 
10 ways to solve Syria or whatever every day. Um, no, no. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you know, there, there's so much, um, uh, as you kind of mentioned, there's, there's such a kind of volume of information coming out of all of these various kind of think tanks and institutions. Is there anyone in particular um, who, particularly on the kinds of things that you cover, um, or any particular researchers uh, you think are definitely worth uh, following and, and reading the stuff that they're putting out on a regular basis or any any think tanks maybe or, or um, uh, smaller organizations uh, consistently doing uh, good work, whether it's field work or, or stuff more to remove? Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, one of, the, one of the people I like a lot in terms of his work is uh, Jam Berger. He does a lot of really good work right. on sort of understanding the online architecture and aspects of what's really going on with these jihadi movements. Um, and he also just came out with uh, a book with Jessica Stern, which I would recommend. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I, I think another person that's really good, not necessarily looking at the Sunni militancy, but from the Shia angle would be Philip Smythe. Um, he's, he's really tapped into something that not that many people have focused on, just because, you know, in the race after 9-11, everybody started focusing on al-Qaeda and Sunni jihadi groups. Um, uh, but he's been one of the few that has really looked at the Shia militancy in a way that um, some of us, like you and myself, have more looked at, uh, you know, from the Sunni side of things. And I imagine that more people will get into that over the years, um, especially in light of, you know, the perception that Iran is now becoming more and more hegemonic in the region right. uh, of the Middle East. Um, but he has been sort of a pioneer in that regard. Um, and then, you know, you you have sort of uh, those who got into this earlier, um, in some ways, you know, Thomas Heghammer and Will McCants, yep. um, Brian Fishman, when he pops up every once in a while, <laughs> right, writing an article with a massive again. paper. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and then I also really enjoy reading the work of, uh, David Gardenstein Ross. I know many people disagree with his opinions on things, but I, but I do, I, I do think it's, it's important for people to have, you know, a difference of opinions on these issues since, um, you know, there is no necessarily eternal truth on it since they are clandestine groups and there are certain gaps in what we will and what we won't know. And and as, you know, uh, we've come to see over the last 15 years or so, many of the predictions and ebbs and flows of these groups have been wrong on many times um, by many people um, in the field. So it's always good to have gadflies in the field as well. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And keeping everybody straight. Um, I'm sure there are other people, too, that I can't think of off the top of my head, unfortunately. I wish I had a list since there are, there are a lot of really, really great people that I, I do like following and yeah. um, uh, reading. Um, uh, you mentioned that Twitter has now become kind of the, the kind of... Uh, an important, if not the central kind of stream of, of, of stuff that kind of flows through um, on, on, on a day-to-day -day basis. Do you have any um, particular kind of workflows or things that you do that um, you found particularly useful, either in terms of, um, you know, whether you're, um, you know, separating, separating people down into lists or, or, or whatever mm -hmm. it is um, that, that, that you found useful? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I'm as uh, technically involved as, say, you or some other people, because I know you really like using some of these different technologies to save content. Uh, I'm a, a bit more manual in some ways, where right. I just 
create these folders on my computer um, and save files in different folders depending on if it's by a specific group in the country that they're operating in, especially in the case of like ISIS just because they are now you know, operating in a number of countries yeah. Um, yeah. or if it's by a particular country, um, if it's more general news um, or you know, foreign fighters for different countries or individuals, um, or media outlets. Um, so I have a bunch of different types of categories, um, uh, and I, I just save content into them um, on a daily basis. Even if I'm not you know, doing research on a particular topic at that moment, I still save it and archive it so that if I wanted to go back and look at it, I'd have it there still. Um, so it is helpful because then you know, sometimes there is something that comes up and I'm and I go through and I'm like, oh wow, this is really fascinating. And I totally forgot that I saved this since, you know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, for for example, uh, you know, uh, when you know ISIS came back onto the scene, everybody pretty much stopped talking about them or looking at them for a few years. Um, but I had all this content and it helped me able to better contextualize things, especially when I wrote this, uh, uh, you know, paper. Of, it was about a year ago in June yeah. uh, 2014, sort of about um, this evolution um, in this war between, you know, Al-Qaeda and ISIS over time. And I was able to bring back documents from, you know, the era where there was sort of that little bit of fighting in 2006 and 2007, but also um, information related to them being the Islamic State of Iraq when that's when they just called themselves that. And sort of the statements from these individuals and and the group itself that I was able to bring back, and I had that, so it was there. So um, it's it's a lot of work in some ways, just because you're constantly always saving content um, and having it there. But it is useful down the road. Um, um, but it it does take time. Um, um, one of the things which um, I I always say, I mean, kind of related to you know the the whole should you should you. Um, do a PhD thing. Um, I often um, will will kind of say to people, forget a PhD. Um, actually, you'll find it's it'll your your kind of value on the uh, academic or think tank marketplace will increase um, uh, exponentially if you uh, learn a particular language of value. And I know it's something we've we've kind of discussed in the past. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, with regard to to Arabic and you know the 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 extent to which it's kind of given you a um, um, an extra kind of feel feel for what's uh, for what's going on. Did you did you know that that would be the case before you started studying it? Um, honestly, I didn't really think of that when I first started studying Arabic. I was just gen, you know, I started studying it my freshman year in college, uh, Indiana Bloomington, and I just did it because I was interested in it um, because, you know, I'd been following the news um, in high school. Just for context, I was 15 when 9-11 happened. And then, of course, two years later, the Iraq War happened. Um, and then a year later, I started undergraduate school. So I was relatively young when all this was unfolding. And I had been following the news and sort of growing up with it. And I was just interested in learning Arabic and learning more about the Middle East and Islam in general. Um, so I, it was more my own curiosity at the time. Right. But then, you know, as I learned it and then as I did my master's and really started exploring these issues and then wanting to write about them because I was seeing them, I, I realized that there was an actual value. And I think that that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, I was able to 
get my job at such a relatively young age, but also for people to notice and respect my work um, at such a young age just because I had this language skill. I'd, I'd say that that is probably one of the single most important aspects of it, um, more so than anything else in some regards. I mean, obviously, hard work is very important, very important too, but I, I do think having that, that skill on top of that um, um, is, is, is crucial. Though, though I will add that I, I do think that social media had uh, an important factor as well since I was able to put content out and interact with people in a way that I wouldn't have in the past, whether it's editors at places like Foreign Policy or The Atlantic or Foreign Affairs, or even interacting with people that had been doing research on this topic uh, previously. So somebody like you know Will McCants or Jared Brackman or Brian Fishman um, or Leah Farrell, um, yeah. you know uh, that you know. So if I had gotten into this field, say ten years if, ago, yeah, ten or fifteen years ago. I don't think I'd necessarily be in the same position I am now. So I think that there's sort of like three main factors. Of course, hard work is always important. Two is having the Arabic. But three, I, I do think that I got in at the right time in terms of the social media when it was still in its infancy. I, I, I do think it's probably a bit more difficult now just because everybody's on it in some respects. Um, right. Whereas when I got on Twitter, yeah. it was in 2008, 2009, and it was still really niche in some ways. Um, and it was a di- and and the way things operated and the kind of conversations people had were different. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. there wasn't really this whole trolling culture or outrage culture <laughs> in the way that there is now. Um, it was more like legitimate conversations in some ways. Um, and I don't think things were necessarily as siloed in terms of particular communities of people. I do think there was more back and forth between different peoples of opinion then. Yeah. Um, so so in some ways the timing ended up. Well, also, I mean, you know, with anything, I do think luck is important too. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I sometimes think that a kind of good, um, uh, a good starting point for assessing, um, you know, the work that that people do, particularly if they're studying um, uh, more in this kind of area studies. Um, uh, side of things, a good um, kind of instant barometer. Is is to see whether they uh, they took the time to to learn a language because that that at least kind of indicates that you know they put in uh, hours that you know quite probably they lived in a particular place they have a sense of its sure. geography people and so on in a way that someone who never spoke the language and who is a quote unquote expert on thirty seven different countries um, uh, you know may not have that that kind of yeah, I mean, beyond the language, just having the opportunity to live in different parts of the region or doing field work in different parts of the Arab world, uh, you get a different feel for the, you know, the people and the culture, and you get a different type of understanding than you would just necessarily even reading something in Arabic too. Um, but then also on top of that, you know, I I can tell when something is written and somebody really has read the content in Arabic. You can really you know, get you can tell, the tell that there's yeah. yeah, you could tell that there's a different level of uh, not necessarily nuance, but uh, understanding in some ways uh, and being able to really touch the words from a video or a document. Um, you know, somebody that I've really enjoyed uh, in terms of his work on the ideological aspects of this more recently is Cole Bunzel, who's uh, wrote that paper recently for Brookings about the yeah. Islamic State's ideology, but also many of the posts. Um, he's 
done for uh, jihadica over the past few years yep. in this particular issue. I mean, things like that, you could really tell somebody <laughs> has a good grasp of the content. Um, it goes beyond just, um, you, know, you know, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and his, his, his family lineage is Quraysh or something like You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, so so for 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 people now who are now kind of um, instantly googling, you know, how to start studying Arabic. Any particular tips or advice or programs or um, these people who should go do a degree in Arabic or what would, what would you recommend? Uh, yeah, I mean, I I think first off it would be good to just start taking it as soon as possible. Um, you know, likely in undergraduate school, just so you can start building um, a base up in terms of the words, but also the grammar and knowledge. Uh, and then I would highly recommend studying abroad as well, um, just because you can learn a dialect, but you can also really get a feel for the culture and the people on the ground as well. Not just, you know, it's not just some something random in some ways when you're reading a document. You really could feel it in some in some respects. Um, but I would I would actually argue, I know that's not, um, uh, living in the Middle East, but I, I thought the program at Middlebury was really, really good. That really helped me out, which I did um, now is, I guess, four summers ago, um, 2011, because you're literally not allowed to speak English the entire time that you're doing it. It's Arabic all the time, and you have to sign an actual contract. Um, whereas when I was living uh, in the region studying Arabic, um, when I was outside of class, I would talk to my friends in English, whereas sure. in Middlebury, I was forced to speak Arabic no matter what, and you forced to learn words that you might not have learned in a class because you needed to use them on a day-to-day basis, yeah. uh, more practical types of things. So uh, I, I thought that that was extremely beneficial. Um, and then on top of that, just once you sort of have a base, just practice it in terms of following the news, you know, whether you're reading like BBC Arabic or, or something along those lines. Um, or for me, the way I, I truly keep up with it is primarily just looking at the primary sources from these organizations. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I don't keep up with my speaking as much anymore because <laughs> I, I live in the U.S. Um, so whenever I attempt to speak, people, you know, joke because I sound like I'm a jihadist or something. Yeah. <laughs> sound, sound like... Or sound like uh, you know I'm I'm like teaching some uh, you know uh, you know postdoc class yeah, yeah yeah just because it's very formal in some ways and they think a lot of people think it's funny um, um, but you know I think those are some of the different steps over time as you get more into it and if you're interested in this particular field I definitely do think it helps out um, uh, but but I'd also argue that you know while Arabic is very important just because, you know, that's where many of these groups are from. There are other avenues to be doing this research, too, as, as you're aware, and, you know, more of the South, Southeast Asian context in terms of, you know, Urdu or Dari or Pashtu or, um, uh, you know, Hindi uh, or even, you know, like languages in Indonesia or Malaysia, maybe. Yeah. Um, or even Farsi, if you're looking into issues related to Iran, um, that, you know, could potentially make it um, more helpful for those interested in those areas just because not as, not quite as many people focus on those areas. Um, or I should say there are people that do focus on those areas, but they might not have the requisite language skills to really um, look at the sources in the way that I think there's been more of a boom in it within the Arab context. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you can tell just by listening, you know, by... Um 
uh, the New York Times correspondent in Tehran, Thomas Erdbrink, um, I think is his name, uh, you know, he's a fluent Farsi speaker uh, and you can really, uh, he's done this really interesting series of uh, films um, from uh, from Tehran, a series, I don't think it's quite yeah. finished yet. Uh, and you can really tell, you know, how it makes a difference for, for him to be a fluent Farsi speaker um, living in Tehran versus... Um, you know his predecessor maybe who perhaps didn't speak Farsi and then had to operate uh, one step removed yeah definitely I mean I think you can build relationships with people also in a way that you wouldn't otherwise Um, you know it makes people feel more comfortable at home in some respects too um, than if you're just some you know I guess in in, from my perspective a potentially loudmouthed American right um, uh, you know all the typical stereotypes about Americans and going to the region and not necessarily knowing something but you know even if you provide a little bit of mouth they they really appreciate that and respect it and of course if you can go even more than that then they're really impressed and um, uh, it's just really nice uh, in my experience For our listeners, if you heard a reference to something, a book or a website or an article, the full show notes with links to everything we talked about in the show can be found at sourcesandmethods.com. If you enjoyed what you heard this week and in previous episodes, please consider writing a review of the show in iTunes or just recommend it to a friend on Twitter or in real life. Thanks for listening.